You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. This podcast is sponsored by Receptiva DX. Receptiva DX is a powerful test that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about Receptiva DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptiva DX, because the journey's worth it. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Carrie Obedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hi. How's it going? <laughs> Great. So, Carrie, you told us you've been making some cookies lately, and I told you I'm not very good at making cookies, and I said, you need to give me some tips on cookie making. So tell me, tell me, tell me, A, what cookies you like to make and share your knowledge with us. So I have a massive sweet tooth and uh, am also a perfectionist. And so the combination thereof, and I was a chemistry major when I was in college (laughs) along with biology. And so when you put all three of those things together, I am very OCD about the sweets that come out of my kitchen. And so whether it's pies or cookies or cakes or, you know, whatever, ice cream, whatever it is, there's... You, there's all of the things that they say in the recipe. And then there's all the things that you pick up from experience along the way. So like with cookie making in particular, um, butter is huge. You have to know what type of butter you're using because there's salted and there's unsalted. And Okay. So when do you choose one versus the other? So I default to unsalted because I want to control the salt amount that I have. And it's okay. easier for me to do that if I know I'm putting in unsalted butter because then I can add in not only salt, but I can add layers of salt. So for example, if I'm doing, um, I have a chocolate chip salted caramel cookie. Mm -hmm. And so you want to use unsalted butter because you're going to get some salt with the caramel itself. And then you're going to sprinkle some big, a couple of big grains of salt on top because Mm -hmm. it cuts the sweet. Mm -hmm. And so I always use unsalted because it gives me greater control. And that's that's true with a lot of cooking. Like I think it's easier to layer in the salt so that you get it at different points. So the other thing, I mean, you know, back 10, 15 years ago, you had, I mean, essentially you bought unsalted butter and it was just unsalted butter. But now, Mm -hmm. just like everything else in the grocery store, now you have European style butters versus American style butters. And I believe the The European style, they have different fat contents. Uh, So it's probably different melting points. And if they had different amounts of fat, Mm -hmm. I would think. So which ones do you use then? So I tend to use the same like general grocery store butters when I'm when I'm <laughs> baking. I use the same grocery store butter because I know how it behaves. Because mm. what I have found is I switched out for one of the fancy. It was um it was one of the Irish butters because I have I have friends who lived in you know Ireland and in France and they are butter snobs. And so I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to switch out and I'm going to try it. Well, it totally screwed the recipe because yeah. the fat content's you different. Change the and fat so, content so it doesn't behave the same way. Yeah. So for me, I always use the same. It's kind of a it's a you know it's a mid quality grocery store unsalted butter because I know how that behaves. And mm-hmm. I found out the hard way that that's really important. <laughs> so what you're also saying is you really have to have experience 
with your own recipe before you, you can't just do, I can't duplicate exactly what you do unless I experiment a little bit. I mean, you can, but there's, there's the things like knowing, okay, when do you need softened butter versus melted butter versus cold butter? Mm-hmm. And cold butter that melts in the oven gives you layers because little pockets of steam are released. And so that's how you get fluffy pie crust. So that's why people are OCD yeah. about cold butter in, in, in pastry oh, Okay. I never knew that. That is a important piece of information. When you're looking at butter, you can also do... So melted butter is different than softened butter because softened butter, when you cream something... So when I mm-hmm. cream butter and sugar at the beginning of a cookie recipe, you can see the difference in the brown sugar, the white sugar, and the butter from the beginning versus the end when it lightens in color. Because that means mm-hmm. that all of these carbohydrate molecules are totally covered in fats. And, and so it separates differently than when you are using melted butter, which... There's no, there's no steam release there. There's no air. There's no pockets, nothing like that that comes out. And you mm-hmm. can also, if you want to add an extra layer of nuttiness and you're, you know that you need to use melted butter, brown the butter in a skillet when you melt it. Because it'll that give again, that so extra. Okay. So brown the butter if you want to change the flavor a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ah. Um, and then, wow. These are so, all very good tips, Carrie. I didn't know this stuff. It's all the it's all the little things. Like if you want something to be really soft, you can add a couple extra tablespoons of flour to it. But you're going to cut flavor when you do that because flour is really bland and there's not much to it. So flour makes it softer. It can, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Like my when I met my husband, his trick for getting super soft chocolate chip cookies, he would add instead of a teaspoon of vanilla, he would do a tablespoon to add to the flavor, and then mm-hmm. he would add in, you know, extra probably. Flour an extra quarter cup or so of flour because it makes it a little softer and chewier. Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. So if you like crispy, you go a little less. Mm -hmm. If you like crispy, the melted butter is a little bit better uh, compared to the softened butter. Um, Pan color makes a difference. I'm taking notes here, Carrie. Now you've added, you tell me so much now. It's it's coming out of my mind. I can't, can't think about it. I can't remember it. So (laughs) I'm taking notes here really fast. (laughs) Light pans versus dark pans make a difference. Do you bake on like silicone mats or anything like that? What's your opinion on things like that? So it depends on the recipe. Um, For my chocolate chip cookies, which I like to be really soft, I'll use a a silicone mat. For things like, you know, those spritz butter cookies that Mm -hmm. you see, like I always see them at Christmas and I always see them at... um, usually Easter, because those are the times when they're really easy to color and sprinkle and all those things. Mm-hmm. Those, you don't want to use a silicone mat because their adherence to the pan when you're you're putting them through the cookie press is what makes them stick. So if you use a silicone mat, you end up with a mess. If you use, if you put them on the straight pan, then they stick and you get the crispier, mm-hmm. you get a little bit crispier bottom and they adhere. So you, they get the shape that you want. Cool. Yeah. Wow, yeah. all these wonderful cookie tips. I could we can make a whole podcast for uh baking and I, but I, I want you to make hours. some cookies and send them what, to me. What to bake during fertility <laughs> care? Why don't why don't we go on to an to to a question on that note? There <laughs> that you sounds go. like a much better idea. <laughs> all right. Our first question today is I'm a regular platelet donor at the Red Cross. I plan to start getting pregnant in a few months. Is it okay to keep donating until I'm pregnant? I'm a big fan of the show. Thanks. Um, I think it takes about eight weeks or at least minimum eight weeks between donation of red blood. I've never donated platelets, but with red blood, you can donate every eight weeks. Platelets, I know you have to be there for several hours and it takes a long time to donate platelets. I, I would say 
I mean, three months is kind of what we say for everything in medicine. Give yourself three months on prenatal vitamins before you try and get pregnant. Give yourself three months on folic acid. I would probably not do that within three months of when you're going to try and get pregnant. I just, I think that's a big deal when you're donating platelets. I think a lot of it also depends how, how much they are taking. And I admittedly don't know a huge amount about platelet donation and platelets. You need a fair amount of blood. It takes about two. They approached me because I donated regularly for a while and they approached me about donating platelets and you have to be there for two hours for them to, they kind of, I don't know, take your blood through this machine and suck out your platelets. And it's, it's a long process. Yeah. I mean, women, pregnant women are more prone to anemia. And so depending on how many red blood cells they're taking out in combination to Mm -hmm. get to those platelets, that's actually probably more problematic during pregnancy than anything else. Um, just because pregnant women run, run anemic, they just do because of the volume dilution. So, and I'm making this comment just because I'm assuming most people who are listening to this have had some challenges getting pregnant, but especially if you're going into IVF, we want you to have all your platelets. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> because we don't we want your you to have clot. a bleeding problem and then need platelets. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I I think, you know, what you're doing as a platelet donor is very honorable and it's an yes. amazing gift. And, you know, it's just probably at this moment in time, you need to be focusing a little bit more on you. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree. agree with that. I think that that is probably the single most important reason to be cautious about donating at that time rather than anything else. Like the other stuff that we talked about is pretty minimal, but that's a big one. Yeah. One more? Yeah. Okay. Your podcast has been beyond therapeutic to educate myself on all things fertility related. I was wondering what your recommendations are regarding exercise size while starting a frozen embryo transfer. I know it's important to minimize activity after the transfer takes place, but was a bit unsure about the period after retrieval and before FET. Many thanks to all three docs and everyone behind the scenes that helped make this podcast happen. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. That's warm and fuzzy. Yes. Um... So this sounds like this is more the in-between stage than when she's actually talking about the FET. So right. So after retrieval before FET. So definitely get your period after retrieval. Those ovaries are still big and don't do anything too quickly after retrieval because we don't want you to torse and we don't want you to lose an ovary. We don't want them to bleed. None of those things. And I think all three of us have seen that happen. And especially when it's something avoidable, um, be I would say be really cautious about that. Once you are past your period and you are just kind of in the waiting game, waiting for the subsequent period or whenever you're going to start your retrieval process, excuse me, your transfer process, um, a lot of that varies by doc. We don't really want you doing anything super, super intense. Like now is not the time to train for a marathon. Um, because we don't want your body going through that extra layer of stress. And stress is not just your boss yelling at you or having a ton of things to do. Stress is any sort of additional physical requirement above and beyond what is normal. And so a lot of us will tell people to kind of back off and do maybe what you're you're used to doing, but now is not the time to go above and beyond and make extra gains and, and progress. What I usually say is that moderate exercise is fine. Moderate does vary from person to person depending on what you normally do. So if you don't normally do anything, then you know, you're know <laughs> not going to be able to do the same amount as somebody who has been like a CrossFit queen, okay? But kind of back to what Carrie was saying, the way that I explain it, 
because when people generally ask us about exercise, they really want us to be able to say, keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) Okay. And we know that and we see it on your face and we know what's in your heart and it makes you feel good and all the great endorphins. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to cut that out completely because we know that it's very important for your body and it's very important for your mind. Okay. Yeah. But the way that I like you to think about it is think of it in caveman days where if you were having to exert your body to some sort of extreme, your body may say, hmm, maybe this isn't a great time to build a little human, okay? And so it really kind of comes down to, you know, treat your body well, be nice to it, um, you know, get out there because doing exercise is nice for your body. It is. Um, but we, we like Carrie said, don't, don't be training for a marathon right then. Mm-hmm. Very good points. Well, um, today we're going to talk about the thyroid. And the thyroid is an endocrine organ that's very important for doing several things, including what, Susan? What's the most important function of the thyroid? The Well, the thyroid is actually one of the main regulators of almost everything in your body. <laughs> I mean, not only is it obviously since we're talking about it, you know, helping you have babies with healthy brain development and and things like that but it helps you know helps your heart beat at the correct rate it helps maintain your hair skin and nails it it helps you have good sleep it, it really is one of the most controlling um hormones in your body that affects <laughs> almost every organ system so Carrie what are some symptoms that people would notice if their thyroid was not functioning appropriately so your thyroid cannot function normally by being too active, and it can be not functioning normally by being underactive. And both of those things have kind of different effects. So energy levels can be off. So if it's really underactive, you feel sluggish. If it's overactive, you feel kind of hyper. Um, sometimes if it's really overactive, along with that hyperness, you feel palpitations, your heart feels like it's fluttering, you feel like you're just jazzed all the time. Um, you notice skin changes. So tends to be, particularly when you're underactive, it goes dry. You can see your hair falling out, um, more likely to break. Um, There is one of these findings that has stuck with me since medical school of if you have a really underactive thyroid, you lose the outer third of your uh, eyebrows. And I have watched for that all the time. And the problem is now because people are so attentive (laughs) to their eyebrows, I can't tell when people are doing it. I can't tell when people are doing it from purpose or if it's like, oh, maybe that is a thyroid finding. Um, sometimes people have difficulty swallowing because they develop a enlarged thyroid. That's right. So they can have a, a goiter, which is the classic really underactive thyroid. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it can be inflamed. And so they notice their swallowing is not quite the same. Or you see this somewhat often actually with celebrities. Like I feel like every couple of years, somebody comes out and says... I was doing this interview and a viewer wrote in and said, you need to get your thyroid checked. Yeah. Because because sometimes you can physically see it and you as the patient may not notice it because you see yourself every day. But someone who only sees you once every couple of months may go, hey, wait a minute, what's what's going on with your neck there? Um, you know, uh, sometimes irregular periods, That will, that's what we see a lot in our world. And that can happen um, with over or underactive thyroid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then too much change, or too little. changes in your weight if you are have an underactor, underactive thyroid, you tend to gain weight or have more trouble losing weight. Whereas if you have an overactive thyroid, 
you tend to lose weight. And I'm going to tell you a little story as an aside for this one. So I personally have Graves' disease, which is a um, overactive thyroid condition. And um, the way that it actually got diagnosed, I was a resident and I was doing night shift. And so when you're when you're doing night shift as a resident, literally you are in scrubs all of your waking hours or you are <laughs> asleep at home. You're eating crap. <laughs> like yes, your diet's terrible. Everybody gains weight no on night shift. There's no rhythm in your life. <laughs> like everything's, everything's off. And I did this rotation and I had just finished my night shift and, and rotation for like six weeks or two months or whatever it was. And my husband and I were going to go out to celebrate me getting back on days. <laughs> and <laughs> so I he went actually to my, saw you. He, so he actually saw me. But what happened was I went to put on a pair of my skinnier, tighter jeans and they were big. And I was oh, wow. like, so you lost oh, a bunch is, of weight. I had lost a lot of weight and I hadn't realized it because I was, I mean, you know, I was living in scrubs. You just, you know, you tie the string. And, and usually, let me just add in for most people, it's usually the opposite problem. If you're living in scrubs and then you go back to regular clothes, you're like, right, wow, exactly. Like you go put on your skinny jeans and you expect to have to like work them a little bit. Yeah. And I like put them on. By the way, it's already pretty thin anyway. So I can't imagine you losing so many, so much weight that you couldn't get in your tight jeans. That's <laughs> how I, like, I, did that. And I was like, Ooh, this is not normal. And so I went to my doctor and got tested. And that's how I got diagnosed with Graves disease. You know, the more remarkable thing about that is that a physician went to a physician <laughs> to actually get, take care of herself and get diagnosed. That yeah. is the most surprising awesome. thing. Thyroid problems are most one of the one of the most common abnormalities that we see, especially in women. Twenty percent of women have thyroid dysfunction. It's huge, yeah. but what you don't see is a physician actually taking care of herself. A plus. No, thank you. Yeah, and you know one thing we forgot to define on the front end. I forgot to mention that hypothyroidism is really what I think most people that we mm -hmm. see, or at least that I see, have. And that's underactive thyroid, and that's the kind of where you gain weight. Susan had the opposite of that. She had hyperactive thyroid or hyperthyroidism where her metabolism was going too quickly and therefore she was losing weight. And, and to that end, Carrie, we, we talked about the reproductive axis. Will you tell us about the thyroid axis? So the thyroid axis is works very similarly in concept. So what happens is that the um, hypothalamus produces a thyroid releasing hormone that then goes down to the pituitary that kicks out TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone, which then acts on the thyroid, which then kicks out the various thyroid hormones. And there's T3 and there's T4 and there's, you know, reverse and normal and <laughs> all of all of the iterations of the thyroid hormone. But what happens is that TSH is the one that is most easily measured out of all of them. And so it's the one that we base everything off of. Because most of the time when you're looking at a T4, free T4 level, for example, which is a thyroid hormone actually produced by the thyroid, that is oftentimes a calculated number. And so the TSH is a little bit more easily measured. So that is how we judge what's going on a lot of the time, not exclusively, but it's the good screening measure. So a couple of things I'd like to mention is that with um, measuring thyroid hormones is that generally for when you're going in as a new patient, we often will do TSH and free T4. Not always, but those are usually the top two that are ordered. But during pregnancy, we really focus on that TSH level because we'll have some mm -hmm. people who have been to an endocrinologist for years and, you know, this type of, and they're like, I want the full panel. But the thing is, is during pregnancy, we don't 
We don't chase after those things because thyroid need in pregnancy is a moving target and TSH is the one that's going to give us our best results. And so that's something to kind of think about. And then another thing is understanding your labs. So if you have a TSH level that is high, that is an indicator that you have hypo low thyroid production. So your brain's having common, to work, more common, which one. is which is more common. So your brain's having to yell to make your thyroid <laughs> do what it's supposed to. Whereas if you are hyperthyroid, so your thyroid's producing lots of hormone, then your brain is being shh. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's it's things to understand how your labs are working. So Carrie, I think patients get very confused sometimes when they come to my office and I'm sure your office too, because we check a thyroid level on the female partner. And then if she has a male partner, we don't necessarily check his thyroid. But if we were going to check his thyroid, they may, may have the exact same levels. They may be in the range that we would normally consider as a normal thyroid level. Yet sometimes with women, we decide to treat them if if her TSH level is greater than 2.5. Can you explain that? Tell me about that. So there's what's called subclinical hypothyroidism. And what that is, is that your TSH is in the technically normal range. So usually we're looking for, if you if you are not trying to get pregnant and you just go to your doc and your, level, your TSH is four or less, usually 4.5 or less, nobody's going to do anything. They're just going to watch it. You'll come back for your recheck. If it's a little bit higher than that, then you know, they may have you come back a little bit sooner to recheck it, but nobody's going to think about anything, particularly if your T4 is normal, particularly if you're not having any symptoms of any type. When we are in the fertility world and we see that subclinical hypothyroidism, which is your levels are technically in the normal range, but your TSH is between about 2.5 and 4, then we start to think, okay, do we need to optimize this at all? Like, is this something where we can improve this. And oftentimes we're using additional information. So we look at your free T4 level. We look at your thyroid antibody level. The, the, um, the guidelines on this are often a not super clear because they leave a lot of room for personal physician judgment in there. Um, and they are different between fertility seeking patients and non-fertility seeking patients. So like I said, if you went to your regular doctor and you weren't trying to get pregnant, nobody would pay attention. But when you're in the fertility world, we do start to worry about it a little bit more because we're just looking to optimize everything. And we know that people with really screwball thyroid levels have a higher level, a lot higher chance of miscarrying. And so we just want to improve that. So we may start you on just a very low dose of usually levothyroxine, um, which is the, the generic name for the thyroid replacement medication, um, to see if that we can optimize it a little too, uh, a little bit more than what it is already doing. I'd like Susan, to, since you're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt because this is one of those things that we do something a little bit different. Um, so generally, if we are, if you're just taking care of your regular thyroid issues, I totally agree the generic levothyroxine is fine. Um, for people who are trying to achieve pregnancy, I generally recommend brand name, either Synthroid or Tyrosent. Um, the FDA allows generics to vary 7% plus or minus when they are, you have a generic that's formulated. So you may get a bottle of thyroid medicine that is supposedly 50 micrograms this month, and it could be maybe plus 7% or somewhere in between there. And your next bottle could be different. And as I had mentioned early, earlier, 
thyroid function during pregnancy changes pretty quickly and we we are we are chasing it. So I personally like to if I'm chasing a moving target, I like to have a bullet <laughs> that's going to go in a straight direction and not be wavering itself. So that that's something I, I tend to steer steer clear of the generics it, it, during specifically going into pregnancy. So Susan, I had a patient recently that wanted to do natural thyroid hormone. Um, and I think Armour Thyroid is an example of that. What are your thoughts about Armour Thyroid? Again, it, it's hard. It, it's, Terry's like rubbing her forehead. I know what you're going to say. It is, it's it's harder to manage during pregnancy. And I, I I am not a fan of it going into what we do. You know, lots of people feel better on that. But this is sometimes one of those things where I think technical control for the well-being of your pregnancy is sometimes more important than necessarily that great power rush that you can get on some of those natural forms of thyroid hormone. One of my one of my endocrinology buddies, I was talking to them about Armour Thyroid, and she was like, "Well, I tell my patients that it's natural hormone if you're a pig, but if you're not, it's probably not good for you." <laughs> so, and I think it's just yeah, you just can't really control it, and it's not it's not the same thyroid hormone that you as a human would have. It's pig thyroid hormone. So, so just just something to think about. Isn't there um, more variation with the, a lot of the natural ones as well? Yeah. Because it's it's literally ground up animal thyroid that yes, that's they, right. They turn in. So when you're talking about variation and we're we're fussing about brand name generic, <laughs> yeah. Then you add a desiccated, you know, pig thyroid or whatever it is, and it it adds a whole other layer. So Susan, you mentioned Graves' disease, which is what you have. Tell me a little bit about Hashimoto's, which is another autoimmune, fairly relatively common thyroid condition that people have. So Hashimoto's is kind of interesting because Hashimoto's is the one that you think about where people sometimes get goiters or growths on their um, thyroid. It tends to be very diffuse. So not necessarily like a single nodule, but kind of multi-nodular throughout the entire thyroid. And what often happens is they can have little spurts of hyperthyroidism, but eventually you're thyroid kind of peters out and it ends up being non-functional. And so um, there can be some antibodies um, that are produced that we know that are not pregnancy necessarily friendly. And so using the thyroid supplementation, if you have Hashimoto's, can help somewhat control those, but it actually, it's more that your pregnancy outcomes end up better than necessarily a true improvement in your um, thyroid antibodies. And it and it's the most common cause of thyroid dysfunction, especially in women. And also too, I think one thing that your doctor should be aware of um, is that, and, and Carrie, correct me if I'm wrong, but so when you've had a thyroid problem, there's an issue that can relate to the fetus, right? So something they need to keep track of when you're pregnant, if you've had some sort of autoimmune thyroid condition. Yeah, they want to make sure that your your thyroid is is functioning. So in general, you're producing adequate amounts of thyroid hormone so that as your baby is growing, particularly before they have the ability to make their own thyroid hormone, that everybody is covered in this case. Um, and yeah, I believe that there are some conditions that have thyroid antibodies that cross through. I think thyroid stimulating hormone with, is it with hyperthyroidism? Yeah, great. Yes. Yeah. So the baby has to be monitored to make sure the baby doesn't have a gorder during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and one thing to know about 
autoimmune conditions in pregnancy in general is, and this is goes for Hashimoto's or Graves or other autoimmune conditions, it, it's kind of the rule of thirds. Some get better, a third get better, a third get worse, and a third stay the same. But we do sometimes see that you, if you have an autoimmune condition, it, it can improve during pregnancy. However, it's very important to watch your son. If you know you have Hashimoto's or you know you have Graves, after pregnancy, if you start experiencing any unusual symptoms, that's when you really need to go talk to your doctor because I can say that did happen with me. <laughs> I had I had Graves. As soon as I got Graves under control, I got pregnant with my oldest son and it was great. I went into complete remission um, during pregnancy and postpartum, whew, that like threw me for a loop. So um, it can it can come back with a vengeance, especially after you've been in remission. So it's something for you to be aware of, like listen to your body and and not everything is just postpartum, you know, oh, your body's having to adjust. If there's funkiness go- going on, talk to your doctor. It's right. hormonal, very legitimately hormonal. Like yeah. everyone talks about, <laughs> oh, you're going to be hormonal when you're postpartum. Well, duh. I mean, your levels are are alternately crashing and raising in ways that they haven't in months. But but the hormonal is not just a pejorative term for um, for being Looney Tunes. It is yes, there are literal things that are happening within your body, and they need to be paid attention to. And some of them are gonna are very common and are gonna resolve themselves, and others need more attention. All right. Well, any last words? Anything that we left out about thyroid that we should talk about? I would say when you do get pregnant realize that in most of these conditions we're talking about that you do need to have regular monitoring during pregnancy because things change very quickly and you should probably have levels checked about every four to six weeks. Um, So sometimes you need to be your own best advocate and make sure that that is the case. And when we're talking about most thyroid conditions, excluding the subclinical hypothyroidism, most of these conditions are things you're going to need to deal with for, for the rest of your life. The subclinical hypothyroidism, oftentimes people can come off of meds after pregnancy and just be monitored for a while and make sure you don't pop one way or the other into hypo or hyper, um, like in the true levels. But um, it, it's it, I'll see people who they'll, they'll get their medicine, get on it, and they're like, oh, I thought I only needed to be on this for four weeks. <laughs> it's like, uh, no, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's not the way thyroid works Doesn't very work. much. So... Good point. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening. Tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in Apple Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Be sure to follow and subscribe to stay updated on all things that are infertility related. You can also visit us on fertilitydocsuncensored.com and submit any specific questions you have about infertility or any follow-ups. Like if you've asked us questions and you now know the answer to them in your own, how they apply to your own personal world, let us know. We like hearing yeah. follow-up. Um, all questions will be answered anonymously on our Ask the Docs, Docs segment. And don't hold back. We love to hear episode ideas. So let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility-dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. 
pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.